0: I don't know that it occurs to most of us that safe districts are not a given, that that is a consequence of a design decision, that our electoral system happens to produce a lot of safe districts and there are other systems that would lessen that phenomenon pretty significantly. We're used to constantly litigating redistricting battles, right, and take it as a given that gerrymandering will always be a fight. Whereas in most democracies, it's really difficult and usually impossible to gerrymander. Democracies that use more proportional electoral systems experience less severe affective polarization and are at less, lesser risk of political violence than in countries with
1: winner-take-all.
2: Welcome to Politics is Everything. I'm Kara whaley And
1: I'm Kyle Condick.
2: In this episode, we are talking with Grant Tudor, a policy advocate at Protect Democracy, where he develops and advocates for a range of reforms to shore up our democratic institutions. Uh, he is a co-author of a new report called Towards Proportional Representation for the US House. Um, Grant, I wonder if we can start by uh, talking a little bit about why the U.S. should consider moving to proportional representation, um, which is, of course, a, a very is, is historic idea dating back to John Stuart Mill and Nicolas de Condorcet.
0: Uh, sure. Um, and thanks so much for having me on today. You know, there's obviously a lot going on um, with American democracy that's, you know, not particularly heartening at the moment. and And I think that at the core of it, um, you know, it's a lot of stuff that people all across the ideological spectrum can agree are, you know, are, are pretty grave issues, um, that we would all want to solve kind of regardless of where we happen to fall on that spectrum. And that ranges from, uh, a collapse in competition, you know, across most, uh, both state and congressional districts, um, state legislative and congressional districts. most voters today live in safe districts in which outcomes are essentially a foregone conclusion, um, Many minority voters, whether that's a political minority like, say, Republicans in California or um, a racial minority like Black voters in most congressional districts, um, are are unable to elect a candidate of their choosing. Um, our legislature and its delegations have pretty skewed partisan results. So consider Massachusetts, it nine seats in its House delegation. All nine are blue, even though I think about a third of the uh, of the electorate in Massachusetts is Republican, and the exact same is true for Oklahoma, but in the inverse, right? Of its five seats, all are red, even though about a third of the Oklahoma um, electorate is 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 blue. Um, and then, of course, you know the, the really kind of dangerous escalation of polarization, political extremism that, um, uh, you know, that most Americans want to see change, but. I, I'm listing on kind of like a host of serious issues that affect American democracy. And we'll talk more about this, I think, in the course of the conversation. But all of them, at least in part, if not large part, um, have some relationship to our electoral system and kind of how we elect representatives to our state legislatures and, and to Congress. And so re-examining what that relationship looks like um, and why our particular system called winner-take-all might be aggravating some of those issues and how alternative systems like proportional representation used by most of the world democracies could help to alleviate them is kind of the question that we wrestle with in this, in this report.
1: You know, one one thing I think about is is you're absolutely right that, that a lot of states are like pretty imbalanced in terms of the, the, the you know, there's certain voters who basically don't get any representation in the House. Um, and, you know, we, we have had, and you go through this in some, in, you mentioned this in your report that like, you know for a long time, the Democrats basically got more seats in the house than their share of the vote nationally would suggest later that became the Republicans. I think the last three elections, the, the popular vote is roughly translated into kind of what you'd expect in terms of the, the overall breakdown of the house. Um, I guess the, from a sort of a reform perspective, like if, if you had, uh, if Massachusetts was six, three democratic instead of nine O democratic and Oklahoma was, I don't know, three, two. Republican instead of 5-0 Republican, I guess you're getting the same overall results from those two states in terms of the net. But like, why, why, is, the, why is the proportional system better, I guess, in your, in your judgment?
0: Yeah, I you know it's a great question. Um, so two parts. Um, part number one, uh, normatively, how we care about proportional outcomes, how much we care about proportional outcomes largely depends on the level at which we're evaluating those So at the level of the House as a whole, Kyle, you're right, that that most of the time, um, the state distribution in the House pretty closely mirrors the vote distribution, actually, right? Like there's, you know, some imbalances and the the translations. Um, Where that becomes much more of an issue, as you point out, is at the level of a congressional delegation. So if you're a Republican in Massachusetts. Yes, obviously, in part, you might care about how the House as a whole looks, but you should or probably do also really care about how your individual delegation looks, right? If you're a Republican in Massachusetts, um, you don't have anyone representing you. From a constituent services perspective, to put it in really practical terms, that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, the same thing is true in, in California, right, where you have pretty wild imbalances between the vote distribution and the seat distribution. Um, so I think that that's kind of point number one. And actually you could go just as a bit of an asterisk, a level deeper at the, at the level of the district itself, right? If you only have a single representative, uh, representing your district in Congress, um, is more likely than not, that that's not someone that you voted for and you don't feel represents you. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the, the other point here is, uh, while to some degree, we can make some predictions around how a more proportional system would kind of create a fair distribution of those seats, according to votes, uh, as you say, you know, 6-3, for example, in Massachusetts, blue to red, um, what it's not accounting for is the emergence of new parties. So in the vast majority of proportional systems, you have more than, you know, two effective um, parties to more than two parties that are politically competitive. Um, and that also really matters, right? And for a number of reasons that we could get into, but just from a representation perspective, having the ability to choose more than one of two, um, especially in a country of over 300 million people that happens to be quite diverse, you know, it's another dimension of representation that, that PR helps to solve for that, that our winner-take-all system struggles with.
2: So I want to follow up. Um, You know, the report addresses the history of the 1967 Uniform Congressional District Act, which I don't think most people are familiar with. Um, So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, why it was enacted. Um, The act, of course, mandates the use of single member districts for House elections. Um, And you know, I, I also want to talk about you know at the time you know as, as you're talking about why it was adopted. You know, one of the reasons was to move away from block reporting or block voting, which I'm sure you're t- you you will talk about. But the point of the reform at the time seems to me overall was to address sort of the some of these same problems you're talking about now about minority representation and to increase minority representation. So. How do we think about reforms in this moment as sort of leading to problems down the road in the way that in the way that that 1967 Act has has also created problems with uh, single member districts?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So, Kara, I think that um, one way to think about it, and this is going to be, you know, overly simplistic, but, you know, forgive me for the sake of. Uh, trying to compress 200 years of history into, into a few senses. Um, I think one way of thinking about it is imagining representation in the US as uh, making progress in fits and starts with dramatic um, setbacks and also important progress along a long continuum of fair representation. So, you know, uh, in the founding era, you know, all the way through until kind of mid 20th century, um, there was a tug of war. Um, between two different types of winner-take-all systems, Um, block voting on the one hand and single-member districting on the other. Greek definitions, block voting is a system in which there are multiple seats per district, um, but those seats are allocated according to a plurality or majority of the vote. For the sake of simplicity, all that really means is one party can sweep all of those seats um, pretty incommensurate with how people vote. Uh, single member districting, on the other hand, right, as the name suggests, is just a single official representative each district. Um, both are winner take all in, in uh, kind of in the political science definition of one party being able to capture an entire district. Single member districting tends to produce much fair representation in Black voting, right? So if you, for example, are a Black voter in the South, um, you might think that having more seats per district gives you more of an opportunity to capture those. Um, capture one of those seats. But in fact, because those seats are elected by plurality or majority, the one party, typically the dominant party, um, makes that prohibitively difficult. So uh, the uh, tug of war between the two systems um, eventually kind of came to a resolution with uniform congressional district, which was like a really important milestone in securing fair representation. Now, the important thing to, I think, remember, if we zoom out, is that while this tug of war was happening in the US, uh, for most of the world's democracies, there was another step in that continuum um, that we effectively prohibited with federally mandating single member districts as the only solution to fair representation. So most of the world's democracies progressed to an even more fair, (laughs) proportional system of representation, various forms of PR. um, And we can talk more about this in the course of this conversation, but that, you know, tended to do a better job of single member districts at securing their representation.
1: You know, there are some states that that I mean, we don't have multi member districts at the congressional level. There are a handful of states that um, that that have some form of multi member districts. Is there is there a state or maybe even like, a don't know, a city council or something across the country that you might think of as like a model for what you the sort of system that you would like to see Congress, um, you know, use across the country?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Uh, I think it's really important to make the distinction between the two different types of multi-seat races that we see both in the US and globally. Um, as we were just talking about, you know, block voting uses multiple seats per district, but produces like very non-proportional results and typically shuts out numerical minorities, including racial minorities. Um, Proportional representation also requires multi-seat races, but allocates those seats in proportion to vote. They just produce kind of wildly different outcomes. Now, I think actually most, if I remember correctly, at least out of the study in 2012, um, over 60 percent, maybe 64, 65 percent of all municipal elections in the U.S. use multi-seat races, and almost all of them do uh, so through block voting. Um, so, not the system that we would want. Um, There are very, very, very few, although a handful, that allocate seats proportionally that would use some kind of form of proportional representation or semi-proportional representation. Um, Just to call out a recent example, um, Portland, Oregon um, just adopted a particular form of proportional representation um, called the single transferable vote. Um, And now I think probably the largest municipality in the country that is using proportional representation Um, to elected city officials,
1: uh, just to, just to follow up on that. So let's just, I think it'd be helpful just to talk about like how this would work in practice. So like, let's take Massachusetts as an example. Let's say that, and and you correct and modify this however you want, but just, but so let's say, you know, Massachusetts has nine house members. Let's say that you had a multi-member districting scheme and there were three districts that were created in Massachusetts. so each, each district would have, you know, would have three members. Like, how would that work in your ideal situation? How would the seats be allocated? And like, how does, you know, if you're a voter, what, do you just get a single vote? Do you get to vote for three members? Like, how does, how does it all work?
0: Sure. Just to clarify. So the first part of the question is how the districts would, would functionally
1: work. Is that what you're asking? Right. Right. I mean, and, in, and, in, you know, in, in a, I mean, obviously the, the uh, 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 I think you mentioned in the report that, like y- the ideal district would have at least five members, ah, okay. got uh, it. but but, but again, some states don't even have five members. so just like how you know, just sort of sketch it out as how how you think it, it could or or should work,
0: sure. Yes. So the foundational decision in any proportional system is any system of proportional representation is how many members per district get elected. So, in political science speak, that's called district magnitude um there is a wide range of district magnitude decisions across democracies that use pr um israel i think is 120 has Uruguay, as you know as a, as a um uh, point of comparison is is i think much more modest three four, maybe five of districts um so the, the variation is significant and we can kind of get into to why that's really important um that said, most democracies that use PR have a pretty modest district magnitude or district magnitude of around like five to eight are thereabouts. Um So, you know, we don't necessarily suggest in the report that there's an ideal range per se. Um, but it seems sensible that in the US, something more modest, say five to eight would probably be pretty. Um, now, Kyle, you bring up the issue of, you know, some states simply couldn't, right? Like think of Wyoming, think of Montana, think of Rhode Island. So there are natural constraints, obviously, given apportionment issues on the number of districts that could feature more than one or two or three representatives. Um, So acknowledging that to be the case, right, there are some states that would functionally be like an outlier in kind of any move towards proportional representation in the U.S. There is one solve for that, though. Um, Often, Proposals for proportional representation in the U.S. are coupled with proposals to expand the size of the Now, there's a number of reasons why that might be advantageous. At least one of them uh, is the ability for smaller states to design multi member districts with more than just, you know, two or three or four representatives.
1: And just in terms of the the mechanism, like if you're in a, you know, in a, in a district that, or in a a state that has, you know, you're electing multiple, multiple house members, like you know, are you uh, voting for a party? Are you voting for individuals? Like, how many votes do people get? Like, just just how does it how does it work? Because I mean, we're all you know. Mo- I mean, again, there are multi member districts in, in in certain state legislatures, but you know, most of us are just familiar with like, hey, we've got one house member, we have one vote for it, winner take right. all. How is this? How is this different in terms of the voting experience?
0: Right, um, uh, Kyle, you're opening a Pandora's box with
1: <laughs> <laughs> a that Address
0: this I just. Yeah, no, 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 that's, that's great. There are, I mean, there are as many forms of horse representation as there are countries that use it. Um, but, but to kind of simplify the taxonomy, um, there are versions of PR that from a voter experience are quite literally, I shouldn't say quite literally, that are nearly identical to our current experience. So I'll give one example. Um, one of the more common versions of PR is something called open list for horse representation, open list PR, um, in which a voter selects a single candidate um, with their vote, which is exactly what we do now, right? Um, now, what happens with that single vote in an open list PR system is the vote counts both for the candidate as well as for the party itself. Now, the total number of votes for a party, the share, the share of votes for a party, determines the number of seats that it gets. Um, And the top candidates that win in each district for that party get sent to Congress um, or get sent to the legislature. So the mechanics maybe are a bit more complicated on the back end, but from the voter experience, you're essentially doing the same thing that you're doing now. You're selecting a single candidate. Now, there are other versions of PR, for example, closed list representation, uh, where you're just voting for a single party instead of a single candidate. Um, And then there are other versions of PR, like the one that was just adopted in Portland, the single transferable vote in which you're ranking candidate, as opposed to just choosing a single one. So there are versions of PR that are very similar to how we vote now. And there are versions of PR that that are quite different.
2: We actually did an interview with the folks that led the movement in Oregon um, back in in November. And so I'll, I'll drop a link in the episode notes for our listeners as a reminder of, you know, what that looks like in Oregon and how they expect to go. Grant, you've raised the fact that other democracies abroad do already use proportional representation. And looking at some of those examples, especially like Israel, the Proportional representation, multi-party systems could create a new set of consequences, including the collapse of government and and instability. You know, there there are critics that that argue um, that multi-party coalitions can be unstable and indecisive, and and plenty of legislatures, you know, have the same kinds of trouble in governing that we do here in the United States, um, where public opinion of Congress is at all time lows. So, what are the trade offs in, in moving to this kind of system? And, and what do you say to, to critics?
0: Yeah, sure. I would say, you know, first and foremost, um, there's really important truths to those criticisms, um, those concerns. I think that the, the analysis becomes really important when we go kind of a few levels deeper into the types of PR systems that we're talking about. So, for example, Israel kind of famously uses one of the most extreme versions of proportional representation in which there are no districts. So the entire country is a single district. That means that the district magnitude, the number of representatives per district, per that one district, is the equivalent of the size of their assembly, which I think is about 100. Um, Now, forgive me because I'm going to go into the political science just for like 30 seconds, but uh, the district, average district magnitude in a country um, is predictive, largely determines the number of uh, political parties. So when you dial up district magnitude, you dial up the number of representatives per district, um, you're going to create space for more parties to emerge. Um, So it's not a coincidence that in somewhere like Israel, you have, you know, I think over a dozen, probably quite a bit more now um, political parties in the legislature that are, you know, vying for power through coalition government. Um, that creates a lot of instability. Um, now to use the example from earlier, it's somewhere like Uruguay with a much lower district magnitude, three, four, five. Um, You really only have space for, uh, you know, a few major political parties, um, who tend to create much more stable coalitions over a longer period of time. So kind of the critical variable here is the number of representatives per district that a PR system permits. Um, and that decision creates kind of pretty dramatic outcomes as it relates to things, you know, from the stability of um, government and the coalition within that government to, say, policy coherence. You know, the degree to which policy is staying consistent from government to government or experiencing kind of wild swings from one to the next. Um, I'll say though, you know, just as like a general observation um, that the the world's most stable democracies over the past 50, 60, 70, 80 years uh, use proportional representation. Uh, we are the most well-known and now one of the only countries left that uses winner-take-all. And I think it's a hard argument to make that, at least at this moment in time and going forward, kind of we are the, <laughs> the emblem of, of of stability. And so I think that there is some kind of interrogation that that's important, um, when kind of thinking about that, that observation that, that PR, you know, leads to some type of, um, uh, uh, which, you know, I think is clearly the case in some instances like Israel, but often is really not the case for the majority of countries that use the system.
1: So, you know, one thing I, I feel like we, we sort of think about, or maybe don't think about is just that like, you know, we're so focused on like what the courts say about how our elections are run and all this, that like. You know, if Congress, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like if Congress wanted to mandate some sort of redistricting scheme throughout the country for our current system, they could just do it. Um, and also with like w- with this, I mean, this is just if if we wanted to if Congress wanted to change this, the system, they would just they could just pass this bill, right? I mean, and it would be, you know, just like any other bill, like House and Senate, and then the president would sign it. I, I was actually just sort of thinking too, is that, you know, because this just deals with the house, if it, uh, the House could just sort of set the rules for its own elections by itself. That's right. So it would just be it would just be the House determining how this works, and it wouldn't be the senator president involved.
0: You know, there's the important there's two important distinctions. That's one of them. This is this would be accomplished through regular lawmaking. Um, right. I mean, Congress would have to pass a bill and the president wouldn't sign it. Um, I think the the other dimension to this that separates forced representation for the House from a lot of other kind of big structural reform ideas is that there's no constitutional amendment necessary, right? So if you think about things like you know reforming the Senate or the Electoral College, you know the the barriers are just qualitatively different.
2: So what do you see as the barriers and what is the path forward?
0: <laughs> it's the million dollar question. Yeah, so. You know, the report goes into some depth. The biggest barrier right now is a lack of imagination. We in the United States have been wrestling with our winner-take-all system by coming up with band-aids to that system, um, as opposed to rethinking it altogether. Um, You know, in large part, it's the curse of being the world's first constitutional democracy. There were very few examples, right, globally, in this case, none except Great Britain, from which to draw. Um, and so we locked into a certain system really early on. Um, that institutional inertia has proved to be really, really powerful. And so, when other democracies came onto the scene in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, um forced representation was available um, in, in, um, you know in the sense that you know it was both in theory and in practice something that other countries could pull from. And so we have not been afforded that same opportunity. And I think for that reason, you know, this is now just a water we swim in, um, and it's hard to step back and imagine that another way of electing our lawmakers is possible, which is why, you know, experiments, what's happening in Portland are so important, right? It showcases that um, doing things differently, um, and then, you know, seriously assessing the consequences of those um, experiments, um, both, you know, the positives and the trade-offs. Um, it's why that's so important.
2: The United Kingdom also has first past the post. um, But looking at recent polls um, in the British public, there's been a pretty consistent movement that um, shows a majority or at least a significant plurality of support for a proportional electoral system there. Um, We don't have a lot of good survey data of the American public. Um, but we do know that 25 of 63 states and locali- uh, localities identified as having adopted um, some sort of alternative voting system since 2000, 40 percent did so pursuant to a public vote. Um, so there, there is some um, positive public opinion for this. But I- I'm wondering what your sense is of public opinion in the United States about proportional representation.
0: Yeah, Carrie, I mean, it's so hard to say, in part because if you use the word proportional representation in public, I mean, most of the time people look at you right? <laughs> and so um, even even kind of the language that we might use to describe a concept is, is you know, entirely, I shouldn't say entirely, largely foreign and unfamiliar, and, and that makes it really difficult. Um, I think that there are some proxy indicators, though. So for example, um, roughly seven in 10 Americans, according to Pew Research, Roughly seven in 10 Americans um, would like the opportunity to vote for another party um, beside the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Um, that is not necessarily, you know, uh, a vote in favor of horse representation, but that's not a big one, right? Um, so if you make the case that there are electoral systems that allow more parties to emerge, you could imagine that a pretty significant share, if not a supermajority, at least in this case, of Americans might support that kind of system. Um, so you know i I do think that there's a lot of research to be done, um especially in a way that makes these concepts accessible um but we do have some proxy keys that um probably point in the direction of a lot of Americans would say yeah, I mean that that
1: probably makes sense you, you make a great point that just Americans don't seem to have a lot of imagination about like what this could this could be different, and you know the we're not handcuffed on this particular issue that if there was movement to actually change it, you wouldn't, as you say, you wouldn't actually need to change the constitution to, to do it. So um, right. I, do think, I do think it's an interesting, um, interesting idea. Um, you know, selfishly for me, I want the district system to, to continue because I track it throughout, you know, history or whatever. And so I just want everything to be consistent. It's not a public-minded argument. It's like, it's like, oh, I want the electoral college to stay because I'm an electoral yeah. college analyst and I want to keep the history going. But again, that's not a good reason.
0: You know, there, there's uh, there's all kinds of reasons. You know, I, I will I just maybe a, a bit of a final note on the kind of lack of imagination. I mean, one of the things that we've observed, you know, in the course of doing this research and in having conversations with lots of different types of folks and not representation is uh, there are so many issues plaguing American democracy that we kind of take as a given. Um, you know, we talked about safe districts at the beginning of this conversation. Um, I don't know that it occurs to most of us that that safe districts are not a given that that is a consequence of a design decision um, that our electoral system happens to produce a lot of safe districts. And there are other systems that um, would lessen that phenomenon pretty significantly, you know, or or relatedly. Um, you know, we are, you know, as, as we're all waiting for the decision in um, Milligan, uh, you know, We're used to constantly litigating redistricting battles, right? Um, And kind of take it as a given that gerrymandering will always be a fight. Whereas in most democracies, it's really difficult and usually impossible to gerrymander, right? The political science research finds that districts with at least five or more seats allocated proportionally um, make gerrymandering functionally impossible. Um, So there's a reason that most democracies don't struggle with gerrymandering in the way that we do. so, you know, I think that there's kind of a, a long line of uh, issues that we're like so used to uh, fighting um, that, that we kind of forget that there's systems that need those fights altogether.
2: You know, there is just one one final note on that. I, I did also recently read a great political science article about how redistricting and gerrymandering abroad. It's a study of of countries abroad actually increases political conflict and leads to civil wars and political violence. Um, so, you know, if we can sort of address like the, uh, that underlying root. Um, you know, through through reforms and and through redesigning institutions, it seems like a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. So thank you for helping us.
0: Well, imagine
2: how we might redesign our institutions.
0: We talk about this like a bit in the report, but on that note, um, there's now like a pretty uh significant, really exciting body of research in political science. Um, investigating the relationship between polarization, especially affective polarization, right, like the degree to which we don't like each other, not just disagree with each other, Um, between affective polarization and and electoral systems. um, That's now finding pretty consistently that democracies that use more proportional electoral systems experience less severe affective polarization um, and as you referenced, Kara, um are at less lesser risk of political violence um, than uh, than in countries with winner take all. Um, there's a few reasons for that that some researchers are interrogating that I think are really interesting. The simple, I think, explanation is is just that when there are more parties on the scene, those coalitions produce a more fluid politics. It's really hard. To always hate the person on the other side. Sometimes you need to work with them, right, and in, in form coalitions, um, especially when those coalitions change over time. And so, um, so yeah, the, the research is is new, it's exciting, and it's pointing in in the direction that I think a lot of us would intuit that um, where our political landscape is more calcified, you know, the problems on a dimension like polarization, and extremism tend to get worse, and where politics is a bit more fluid, those those issues tend to be a bit it last year
2: Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Grant Tudor. And listeners, you can read the report towards proportional representation for the U.S. House at Protect Democracy with a link in the notes. Thanks, Grant. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for a future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group,